everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Paul Elam. He is uh, the Chief Strategy Officer at Michigan Public Health Institute, and he also leads Advanced Peace. How are you doing, Paul? I am doing wonderful today, uh, David. Thanks for the invitation. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do with uh, the Michigan Public Health Institute? Absolutely. We are a Michigan-based, nationally engaged, nonprofit public health institute. We were created by our state legislature over 30 years ago to provide uh, capacity, innovation, a thought partnership um, to our Department of Health and Human Services. And um, we have expanded our footprint to be engaged in all 50 states over the last 30 years. And uh, we work to address uh, public health needs uh, throughout the country. And also tell us about uh, what Advanced Peace is. Yeah, um, because we believe that gun violence is a threat to public health, one of the initiatives uh, that we are engaged in is uh, a strategy to address cyclical retaliatory gun violence. Uh, we started partnering with the city of Lansing and the county of Ingham here in Michigan uh, to plan, design, and implement a strategy called Advanced Peace. And it is a 18 month uh, fellowship that identifies and targets individuals who are at the center of cyclical and retaliatory gun violence to join us in this 18 month experience. And our goal is to get these individuals who are carrying weapons daily, engaged in gun violence to think differently, uh, to develop different attitudes and perceptions about folks that they might be um, feuding with and to think differently about how they might deal with those feuds. Right now they choose to pick guns up and we're hoping as a result of being in our fellowship that they would put those guns down and use different uh, mechanisms to, to, to deal with their disputes. And um, Lansing, Michigan is one of 11 sites uh, that are currently implementing this strategy uh, throughout the country. We don't normally think of gun violence as a public health issue. Um, why is it increasingly coming to be seen as such? 
Yeah, I think that is a wonderful question. By training, um, I am a criminologist. Um, I am, uh, I've studied family and child ecology, sociology, criminology, um, to understand the root causes of uh, crime and delinquency. And I think when you look at our policies, um, we, we assume uh, based on line item budgets, when you look at where resources are going, that law enforcement and the justice system um, have the answers to our delinquency and crime. But the data and the research um, don't tell that story. I think uh, our justice system responds to crime and we have laws and how they ought to respond to crime, but but they are not created to identify the root causes so that we can prevent um, and mitigate and get upstream and and uh, deal with those issues. And I think that's where public health shows up. Public health can look at all types of threats in a community to public health. Um, and gun violence is, is one of those threats. Anything that is causing mortality in a community is a threat to public health. And so we can use our public health approaches. Where is this coming from? Um, what's the source of it? What's the ideology of it? Um, who's involved in it? Who, who has the potential to be connected with, with, with this violence and target that and, and contain it and, and try to uh, do what works, you know? And so I think, unfortunately, um, what, what the general public sees is law enforcement responding to those issues, but um, law enforcement will tell you, we don't often know who the individuals are that are shooting in our community. We hear about them. We may apprehend them. We may not apprehend them. In fact, the individuals that are involved in our fellowship tend to be folks who are disengaged from our human services system. They're not being served in schools, mental health, human services systems, and Law enforcement has not been able to apprehend and arrest these individuals uh, based on uh, the justice process. So in the meantime, what we're doing is trying to engage them by hiring individuals who are seen as credible messengers, individuals who live in communities, who understand why these young men and women might be picking up guns and shooting them. Oftentimes they've done it themselves and have changed their thinking. And so they become models and mentors and uh, the community trusts these individuals, whereas when law enforcement shows up and starts asking questions, I think you probably know people don't talk to police. They, they can't snitch because they might be the next person who's shot if people find out that, that they're sharing their names to law enforcement. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you bring up a lot of very interesting points that I kind of want to unpack uh, a bit. Um, but, you know, I'm interested to know because you mentioned your backgrounds actually in criminology and yet, you know, here you are working for a public health institute. How did you end up uh, on this path, I guess, would be my question. It definitely wasn't planned, David. And so, <laughs> you know, to be honest, it was just um, a journey I took. I came from Detroit, Michigan in 1991. I grew up in that city, had experienced uh, crime and delinquency, saw it, um, probably engaged in it a little bit. And um, when I came to Michigan State, I was studying business. And I took my first social science class and put 
put that business pursuit down to understand how we live in society. It was something that was intriguing to me. And as I explored social science, I shifted to criminal justice and got a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, enjoyed the coursework, got a master's in urban studies and criminal justice to try to understand better uh, this phenomenon I call crime and delinquency that exists in most urban communities throughout the country. What is it and how do we deal with it and intervene and do something about it? And started working um, in the county. Um, my first job was in the county working with um, a caseload of youth who were abused, neglected, or in delinquency. And so saw it firsthand. Uh, went to work for the city of Lansing doing um, development of uh, programs with nonprofit organizations that were often providing basic needs and dealing um, with these issues as well. And then left there and went to work at a public policy research and evaluation firm for 12 years. And while I was there, I got a PhD in family and child ecology um, and started my career there. We were working uh, with the federal government, the state government, local government uh, to gather data, insights, research to help decision makers make better decisions. And I think looking at the data and the research evidence begin to tell me that, you know, um, a lot of things we do were not data driven. We, you know, we use terms like tough on crime, but I would try to say we need to be smart on crime, not tough on crime. We need to do more of what works, not just uh, what you think works or, or what your constituents want you to do in, if you're an elected official. And as I was doing that work in public policy research and evaluation, um, a colleague of mine who was a career public health professional, I would say I was a career human services professional, uh, asked if I would join her um, at the Institute. And uh, my CEO, uh, Renee, uh, Dr. Renee Branch Kennedy, um, had the conversation with me. And initially I wasn't interested, but um, she said, you know, the, the state had merged two departments. Depart the Department of Human Services initially was on its own and the Department of Health and Public Health was a separate state department. And then at one point they merged and now it became the Department of Health and Human Services. And so um, when she told me that a lot of my work um, needed to be sort of raised up in the Public Health Institute, and we needed to begin to think about intersectionality and working at the intersection of human services and public health and health and behavioral health and mental health. It all made sense to me from a human ecological perspective. So I, I decided to make the shift. And for the first time in my career, I, had, I began to work at the intersection of criminal justice and public health. What does it look like to social distance in a locked up facility, in a jail or a prison? And, and found out pretty quickly, you don't have many professionals working at the intersection to do that type of work. Uh, typically criminal justice folks work with criminal justice folks and public health folks work with public health folks. If you look at the intake process in a jail or a prison, typically there's a wing where the behavioral health stuff takes place and they do their assessments and intake and all that, but they don't really sit down at the table to design and create and to get to root cause work together. And I think um, where we're going in the field of public health is challenging us to, to do that. You know, how do we 
get the Centers for Disease Control, who has a violence area, to start working with the Department of Justice, who's looking at violence as well. And so that's sort of the space that we work in now as uh, criminal justice and public health professionals trying to understand phenomena in our community that we have to deal with on a day in and day basis. So I enjoy it. it. It definitely wasn't planned. My wife's a nurse. My daughter's a, a public health professional. <laughs> and and uh, we seldom talked about these issues in our household. Now we talk about it all the time. <laughs> and it seems to me that really what you're saying, and, and there's a recognition bro more broadly is we can't arrest ourselves out of this problem. Yeah, I, 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 fundamentally, you're exactly right. Um, crime and delinquency are the effects of something that's taking place um, at the root, right? And so most people aren't born uh, with the initial proclivity or tendency to pick a gun up to engage in violent behavior. It's learned behavior. Um, oftentimes it's, it's, it's behavior based on circumstance, based on poverty, uh, based on some deficit or lack thereof. I don't have a certain skill to um, do things conventionally. I don't have any pro-social um, folks in my network who can model and uh, demonstrate behaviors that, that might be more conventional. Um, I don't have access to higher education. Um, I've been discriminated against, you know, the, the services in my community lack. And so what we do, um, as a prime example, we tend to look at individuals and we attribute solely their behaviors and their outcomes to them. That is a very flawed model. A, a human ecological model realizes and acknowledges that humans live in an environment. We live in context. And that context starts with us, the peers we hang out with, the families we grow up in, the neighborhoods we are a part of, the, the systems and institutions we have access to. And I think if we're honest, that varies for people all over the world. And so while I might contribute to some of my um, outcomes um, and definitely uh, the behaviors that I choose to um, engage in, all of those other domains are also contributing to that. My, my family contributes to that. My, my peers contribute to that. Um, um, my leaders in the community who make policy decisions for me contribute to that. Um, the schools that are made available to me contribute to that. And so... I think um, we need to broaden the conversation to be more inclusive of, of those types of frames. And then I think a public health approach tries to um, develop um, strategy that looks at all of those domains. And so Advanced Peace does that. We, we look at the research evidence and our fellows who are part of our 18-month fellowship have access to 13 evidence-based strategies uh, that are supported by the literature. And we believe when we expose them to that um, daily, um, that they will begin to experience um, some of the benefits uh, that many of us have and take for granted in terms of what we have access to in our communities and our families and the schools we attend and the like. So what do you see as kind of 
the avenues or maybe pathways that a public health approach can best deal with gun violence? Yeah, so what what we're um, doing now is uh, investing nationally, statewide, and locally in what we call a, a CVI approach. It's a community violence intervention model. And what what that model does is is says that there is value in community. You know, I think historically we we sort of said we create budgets in the governmental sector, public service, public health, public safety, um, and, and those uh, professionals are trained and they go out and try to engage the community um, to provide a set of resources. Um, and we will continue to do that. But but the CVI approach is saying we need to broaden the ecosystem that exists in our communities to do that work. And it is intentionally saying we need to bring community to the table as a part of that ecosystem, right? Um, people live in neighborhoods. People have relationships in neighborhoods. People have experiences in neighborhoods. And when you think about something like gun violence, to bring that experience, that capacity, that network to the table and to utilize it um, um, can actually change the game in this case. And so where in the governmental sector, we might be weeding out folks with criminal background histories, folks who have felonies uh, because maybe there's no value, uh, quote unquote, in the workplace um, for that type of experience. I think in this type of work, there's tremendous value to have someone uh, be able to say, I, I know how these individuals live. I live that way. I, I know these individuals who are engaged in the work. Um, they trust me. And to leverage those relationships, I think is key. And so a public health approach is trying to identify the root causes. And in this work, we talk about the folks who are at the center of gun violence. Well, if we put all of our resources in the governmental sector, and the governmental sector is telling us we don't have connections with this particular threat. We don't, we're not seen as credible messengers. They don't trust us. They're not willing to share information with us. Well, that's the antithesis to a public health approach. We, we need an approach that can get to the root cause. And, and I think here, um, that is why this is so valuable. You know, other models and strategies are still grounded in government or law enforcement. And we've done research and evaluation on the effectiveness of those models. And um, some are producing research reports to say that they're still able to drive down gun violence using those models. But I'll tell you one thing that's consistent across all the work is law enforcement will tell you community does not typically trust us. They will not share information with us that they will share with other community members because there's an affinity there, you know, an affinity group meaning we have something in common and typically people share information. Think about if you go to the barbershop or you go um, uh, to a locker room or you have a guy's night out or you have an intimate dinner, we all have affinity in some space and you share information that you would not share in other settings in those affinity spaces, right? And so I, I think public health 
from my perspective, is is a is an approach that's evidence based where people are trained to gather data and insights uh, to identify root causes. Um, uh, we call them social determinants of health, but even beyond that, root causes uh, to bring that those insights to the table. And some of the things we're learning through our approach, we hire neighborhood change agents who work full time to do that work in community. And they meet every day and they're able to talk about things they're observing and seeing and learning by doing street outreach, by having meetings, by uh, running classes with individuals in our community who are directly engaged in gun violence or tangentially engaged uh, with folks who are involved in gun violence. And those insights are being uh, utilized to develop strategy on how to reduce gun violence in our community. And unfortunately, talking about gun violence, you know, um, we had, I believe, yesterday another incident at UNLV. Um, you know, three people were killed in gun violence. What would you like to see done about, you know, the frequency of these mass killings? Because that that seems to be at least, you know, from a national perspective, uh, what people are focused on. That may not be, you know, where the greatest volume of gun violence, but certainly those are those are the attention grabbers. Yeah, so one of the things we're gonna be doing this year is more education and outreach to our elected officials and the general public around types of gun violence and hopefully creating dialogue on solutions. So to your question about the UNLV event, I think what we know is some instances of gun violence, we believe the root cause is, might be mental health. Some instances might be domestic, you know, folks in relationships getting a dispute and they have access to weapons and, and violent things occur. Some might be related to drug distribution or drug deals going bad or, or things like that. And people have a weapon and somebody's trying to rob you or you defend yourself. Some might even be um, related to the, the bigger picture of Kids just have access to weapons now. You know, is this an issue of who should have access or who who doesn't? Anybody pretty much can go into a store and buy a weapon now once you meet certain requirements. Advanced pieces um, focus and niche area in that space is not in any of those areas I just talked about. It's more focused on what we call cyclical retaliatory gun violence, probably gang-related violence. It's It's premeditated violence where if you and I, David, were beefing and we lived in the same vicinity, whether I saw you on social media, um, whether I saw you at, at an event, whether I knew folks you hung out with, we are constantly telling each other, if we see each other, I'm probably going to shoot at you, right? Um, because you've done something to aggravate me and vice versa, or because you know I'm looking for you you get a weapon and you're prepared to defend yourself. I, I think um, that's the first thing I would say in terms of the UNLV event. Most of these events that we see in our communities um, probably are more related to mental health, access to guns, uh, domestic issues, um, or even drug deals going bad. We sit down 
and look at every shooting, every murder in our community on a monthly basis and talk with, I do, talk with law enforcement, um, our prosecutor, our district attorney to understand what was the root cause of this shooting. And, and I think communities need to do more of that, right? What, why did this shooting occur? And my community here in Lansing, we're finding that um, there's a very small number of individuals involved in cyclical and retaliatory gun violence. Like we believe there's less than a hundred people in our community that might be involved in this behavior. That's manageable. If we can wrap our hands around those hundred folks, find out what, what, what they need to get out of that lifestyle. Um, that's great. But the prosecutor just the other week um, wrote an article and said that this year there were over 400 and some odd incidents related to weapons that, that he prosecuted individuals on. And so um, all of those were not cyclical and retaliatory. And so what I'm trying to do is work to delve into those cases and find out the ones that I can focus on and then hopefully shining the light on the whole notion of gun violence and seeing if other agencies are willing to step up and help with the other issues like mental health, like gun access, um, um, like like domestic violence and things of that nature. So I didn't really read the UNLV um, story closely. I've been pretty busy this week, but but that would be my, my first response. What is the root cause of the gun violence? And it's not all the same. And our responses are not necessarily all the same. I, I think from my work as a criminologist, knowing how gang-related crime um, evolves, we believe we gotta do some specific things to change the thinking and behaviors of, of young men and women who live in urban communities who are engaged in this work. It seems like a norm, David, you know, everybody has a weapon nowadays because they can access it and anybody can pull it out and use it if they like to do so. Yeah, and it also seems like, you know, the approach that one size doesn't all fit all, um, you know, seems wise than to treat all gun violence as being the same. Yeah, I'm, I mean, that's being smart on crime, right? So, so going back to what I said earlier, we can't use cookie cutter approaches. Our fellowship is an example of that. We are tailoring services to the needs of individuals who are directly involved in gun violence. We do that through street outreach, through mentoring, uh, through intensive case management, understanding what their needs and risk factors are, uh, through life skills training, talking to them about situations that are real in their life today uh, that they've been faced with, helping them role play around those issues. We do it through cognitive behavioral therapy, one-on-one -on -one group therapy to talk about um, current thinking and why you think that way. Um, and then obviously we have to provide people with conventional means to live. We, we, we start thinking about employment and working on goals to get your education. Um, uh, and we do that daily. I think one of the things that we pride ourselves in, if you're a fellow in our fellowship, you can expect your neighborhood change agent, who's really your lead uh, mentor, to contact you three times a day. And those contacts are really about what you're going through. What do you need? What are you working on today? What are you uh, trying uh, to change in your life today? So that that is all very much tailored and responsive to the needs of our fellows. There is no program. We don't call it a program. In fact, we call it a strategy, right? And and um, 
cookie cutter approaches, I, I don't think are are what's needed in this work. In fact, when we survey young men and something as simple as mentoring, some folks think a mentoring program is where you show up every week at a scheduled time to meet your mentor. But but our fellows tell us, no, a mentor is somebody I can call when I need them, when I'm going through a moment and I can pick the phone up and they're going to be for me. I need to get out of the situation. I need to get out of town. I need some help right now. And so our neighborhood change agents are pretty much available 24-7 to their fellows uh, to provide that that tailored and responsive um, support that they need. And in how many different locations are you guys operating at this point? Well, in in you mean nationally or specifically in Lansing? Uh, nationally. Yeah. So um, Advanced Peace was started uh, actually by Devon Bogan, who is a native of of uh, Lansing, Michigan, but the work started in uh, Richmond, California, and um, it has expanded to the last count I had to about eleven sites throughout the country. So we have multiple sites in California. We have a site down in um, Texas, uh, Fort Worth. We have a site in Orlando, Florida. We have a site um, over in um, New York. Um, we have a site in Lansing, Michigan. And there are other emerging sites uh, that are being engaged as we speak. Um. So if people want to get involved, is there a way that they can get involved? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have a website set up where you can learn more about our strategy and um, submit your contact information, and we'll definitely follow up with you. That's advancedpeacelansingingham.org, advancedpeacelansingingham.org. Most of the times people are asking, well, what can I do uh, to help? Obviously, we can use uh, financial donations. Um, it, it, we need resources to expand our fellowship. Last year, we started with a fellowship of 15 individuals. We're expanding to 16 this year. Um, we have a job posting on our website, mphi.org, for peacekeepers. So we're looking to hire peacekeepers uh, to help us um, build capacity in our community um, to, to keep the peace, to, 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 to reduce gun violence. All peacekeepers will be formally trained um, and they will be eligible to become full-time employees. So if folks want to get directly involved in the work, they can apply to become a peacekeeper. I think we're also looking for mentors um, to help uh, provide mentoring to our fellows. And we also have a, a component of our strategy called a um, elders council. So if you are an individual who, I'm sorry, Elder Circle, if you are an individual who kind of grew up in the community, has navigated this community, transcended some of these concerns we have, we invite these um, volunteers uh, to come back and provide intergenerational uh, messages and mentorship to our current, current fellows. So those are a couple of things, mentors, elders, financial assistance, and you can apply directly to become a peacekeeper. So I'll ask this question and hopefully it's not too uncomfortable, but you know, if you wanted to expand from say 16 to 17, how much money would you need for each additional fellow? 
Great question. And I, I'm definitely not uncomfortable talking about it because what we're doing is uh, research and evidence based. It will do whatever it takes uh, to get somebody to put a gun down. Um, I talked to you about gun violence being a threat to public safety. Gun violence is also a very costly thing we have to deal with. Um, we've done our own research. Every shooting that takes place costs a community about a million dollars. Every murder that takes place costs about $1.6 million. Um, we, we issued an op-ed that uh, documented those costs. Um, it costs about $35,000 a, a year to place one of these individuals in the 18-month fellowship. And, and what is that person going to receive once they are involved in the fellowship again? Uh, mentoring, case management, life skills training, cognitive behavioral therapy, connection with subsidized employment. We're working on goals. Uh, we're connecting with those individuals every day, three times a day. We're connecting individuals to uh, social services that they are eligible for and helping them navigate complicated uh, systems. Uh, we engage them in internship opportunities, and we also provide incentives, stipends for fellows who are actually changing their behavior and doing what we're asking them to do in the fellowship. One, one cool thing we all also do is what we call transformative travel. Um, it provides an opportunity for our fellows to experience life outside of their city of origin where most of this violence has taken place and to safely interact with other fellows from other rival neighborhoods. And that goal is to get people to come together probably for the first time to have dialogue and talk to one another and see each other as human beings. Uh, it, and, and oftentimes when people come back from these transformative travel experiences, they see this person that they may have been feuding with, beefing with, and even trying to murder in a different way. So when they encounter them again in the community, they're less likely to shoot at them or try to kill them. All right. Well, we're we're out of time now. Paul, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I learned a lot. Um, so um, thank you for coming on and, and sharing your amazing work. Um, really a lot of work right on the front edge of a lot of stuff going on, a lot of changes that are happening now. Uh, and the way we're looking at things like gun violence and, and taking a look at it from more of a public health standpoint rather than just a strict law enforcement standpoint. David, thank you for the opportunity. It was my pleasure to be here with you and know that uh, we'll come back anytime you send the invitation. We've been talking with Paul Elam. He is the Chief Strategy Officer at Michigan Public Health Institute, and he leads the advanced piece, uh, doing amazing work, uh, working with people uh, trying to escape gun violence environment. Uh, this has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.